Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, Of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. On our last podcast, I discussed the first several chapters that Joseph Conrad uses to introduce Jim's first encounter with Marlowe. Now, today, I wanted to to, uh, just continue the discussion of the importance of these chapters with the goal of getting us to chapter five. Now, this is an emotionally complex work of fiction, but once you get the clue to how to unpack it, it really is really quite interesting. Now, to help me do this today, with me in the studio is my partner in literature, my wonderful wife, Deborah. Welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back again. It's always good to have company in the studio with me. So, uh, on our last podcast, now, I don't know if uh, you were able to listen to it much or not. You have a lot of other things to do. But I did mention how Conrad does manipulate time. And, of course, these, uh, these chapters basically almost follow four different t- points in time. So, uh, if you, because you've read this, do you have any comments you'd like to add before we jump into the next point in time? <laughs> yes, well, the, it, it's true that the way he jumps around with time is confusing. It can be confusing when you're starting to read it, but the thing is it does create dramatic um, ex- suspense, so it's it's interesting that way. And it does seem to be, this is um, very much how Conrad seems to write, um, he likes to jump around a little bit just to make it more, um, you know, build up a suspense. And it's, um, you know, really it's it's an invent- inventive way of kind of piecing together the story of Jim. We don't, So we're learning about him through this, this interesting way of doing it. Yeah, when I think about it, it, it would, to me, I think um, if you could bring Joseph Conrad back to life with all the advancements we have in filmmaking... He'd be a great filmmaker. Oh, yes, he would be. <laughs> because yeah. we've seen movies like this where, you know, they open up and you see a certain scene, and it, it, it actually might be a future scene, but then you have to go back in the past to figure it out. Or it could be just the opposite way. And so, so you know, I, I think he would have made a great movie director. And uh, certainly I think, um, you know, when I hear the complaints about the novel, I'm just... Uh, I'm just kind of thinking that some people just don't like to read hard stuff. <laughs> they want to read easy stuff. But I, but I really do think there's there's a lot to this book, and there's a lot of great things to it. So so the last uh, podcast, I did get through chapters one and two, and so what I'd like to do is start with chapter three today, and uh, we'll, we'll just catch up. Now, uh, chapter three isn't necessarily its own uh, point in time, but I do think uh, uh, it does give us deeper insights into to Jim. And I think, uh, again, uh, Conrad is really, um, really giving us some deep insight into the character of Jim. And some of it is just really, uh, I think it's just really great writing. But, but the one way you could title Chapter 3 is Jim is on the Night Watch. 
that's that's my simple way of of talking about it. I just want to read the, the first couple lines. And uh, for all of you listeners out there, we're on page 11. If you have the Signet Classic, and if you still do not have the book Lord Jim yet, I encourage you to, to uh, get a copy of it and start reading. And I know some of you have written to me that you're just listening in, which is fine. I'm happy you're listening in. But uh, I think it's also would be good for your brain if you read the book as well. So anyway, here's so I'm going to read to you. I know someone also commented they love it when they hear me read on the radio. So uh, uh, this is a little more interesting than the book I read to my grandson the other night. So I like reading. And of course, even my grandsons like me reading to them. So this is the very bottom of page 11. It says, A marvelous stillness pervaded the world. And the stars, together with the serenity of their rays, seemed to shed upon the earth the assurance of everlasting security. And so, again, that's a very poetic line. But I also think that Joseph Conrad is uh, actually being a little prophetic because uh, we're soon going to find out there is not a whole lot of security <laughs> on what uh, Jim is going to get into. It says, the, the young moon recurved and shining low in the west like a slender shaving thrown up from a bar of gold, and the Arabian Sea smooth and cool to the eye like a sheet of ice extended its perfect level to the perfect circle of a dark horizon. The propeller turned without a check as though it beat, it, its beat had been part of the scheme of a safe universe, and on each side of the Patna, two deep folds of water permanent and somber on the unwrinkled shimber, shimmer Enclosed within their straight and, and diverging rides, a few white swirls of foam bursting in a low hiss, a few wavelets, a few ripples, a few undulations that left behind, agitated the surface of the sea for an instant after the passage of the ship. Subsiding splashingly gently, calmed down at last into the circular stillness of water and sky, with the black speck of the moving hull remaining everlastingly everlastingly, excuse me, in its center. So that's two sentences. <laughs> so uh, does that uh, have any comments there, my friend? Well, it's, it's a beautiful description. And um, I it actually reminds me of a long time ago when I was in college, I was able to be on an ocean liner. And I remember at night, it was one of the fa our favorite things was to be on an ocean liner at night because you couldn't see the the sea in the sky, everything was dark, and it was just you were like in the middle of, of uh, nothing, really nowhere. But it was it very it could be very peaceful. So I can I can picture that, and so it's interest. It's an interesting picture, but the whole, whole idea that he's really it's, um, it's it's just beautiful, peaceful, and he um, talks about the everlasting security, <laughs> which yeah, is interesting. and it's safe. And it's safe. He, he yes, feels it's safe. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, also, you forgot to tell them that you were you were on the the ship going to Europe. Yes, right. Because well, you were you're going to France to study. Yes. Uh, French, and uh, be in France for six months, which I will ever be jealous of. <laughs> All right. So so notice, uh, I'm, I'm gonna just going to skip down I, again because I I think again what's really going on is is Conrad is really preparing us for what's going to happen. But he's also giving us some insights into to, uh, to Jim. So he's definitely very much a romantic. 
I mean, you you can see that he he's got that mentality. In some ways, I can really really relate to it. I'm I tend to be a lot of a a, a dreamer and an adventurer. But this is uh, in the middle of page 12. It says, Jim on the bridge was penetrated by the great certitude of unbounded safety and peace that could be read on the silent aspect of nature like the certitude of fostering love upon the placid tenderness of a mother's face. So so he's looking at this whole scene. It's like he's looking at a mom and her little baby and how pleasant in the, her face looks when she's looking at her child. So so that's, a, that's awfully awfully poetic and romantic. It says, Below the roof of the awning, surrendered to the wisdom of white men and to their courage, trusting the power of their unbelief and the iron shell of their fireship, the pilgrims of an exciting, excuse me, of an exacting faith slip on mats, on blankets, on bare planks, on every deck and all the dark corners, wrapped in dyed cloths, muffled in soiled rags, with their heads resting on small bundles and their faces pressed to bent forearms, the men, the women, the children, the old with the young, the decrepit with the lusty, all equal before sleep, death's brother. And so, so again, I, I feel like Conrad was trying to write a poem there. But uh, so, so Jim, again, he feels un, unbounded safety. Uh, he sees peace. Here we have the 800 pilgrims on the ship. They're all asleep. It's, it's kind of like a, almost like a... Um, what a pastoral scene of all the sheep, you know, sleeping on the hillside, and so uh, so anyway, so so you can see that that uh, the Jim is definitely a, definitely a romantic. All right. So uh, uh, anyway, um, one of the things I I do think that comes out here is the Jim definitely is uh, not only romantic but he's really full of self reliance. And uh, I'm going to go to page 13 and look at the bottom paragraph there. And uh, I think that's important that we know is that, uh, that he really relies on himself. It says, Jim paced, paced athwart, and his footsteps in the vast silence were loud to his own ears, as if echoed by the watchful stars. His eyes, roaming about the line of the horizon, seemed to gaze hungrily into the unattainable and did not see the shadow of the coming event. And so, so uh, here, uh, Conrad's getting us ready for it. There's an event coming, and it's not going to be safe, and it's not going to be secure, and it's going to affect him for the rest of his life. But he feels totally in control at this point. says, the only shadow on the sea was the shadow of the black smoke pouring heavily from the funnel. Uh, it's immense streamer. Uh, whose end was constantly dissolving in the air. Two Malays, silent and almost motionless, steered, one on the east side of the wheel, uh, whose brass rim shone fragmentarily in the oval of the light thrown out by the binnacle. Now and then a hand with black fingers alternately letting go and catching hold of revolving spokes appeared in the illuminated part. The links of the wheel chains ground heavily in the grooves of the barrel. Jim would glance at the compass, would glance around the unattainable horizon, would stretch himself till his joints cracked with a leisurely twist of the body in the very excess of well-being, and as if made audacious by the invincible aspect of the peace, he felt he cared for nothing that could happen to him to the end of his days. <laughs> so, so you can see that um, you know, Conrad is really, really setting us up here and setting up Jim. All right. So uh, uh, I, I do think uh, we have to talk about 
one other paragraph from this page, and I think it's, it shows that uh, Jim is always dreaming of adventure. <laughs> he's, he's totally into adventure. This is like at the bottom of page 14. Um, I'm going to break into the middle of the big paragraph. It's hard to, to be honest, it's hard to even pick out paragraphs in his writing <laughs> because it goes, seems like it goes on and on and on. But it's still, it's great. I'm not trying to criticize him. So that at such times his thoughts would be full of valorous, valorous deeds. He loved these dreams and the success of his imaginary achievements. So, so I think uh, all of you listeners out there, remember this now. He has, you know, he, he considered himself, you know, really powerful, really self-reliant. But a lot of his achievements are imaginary. And so, so that's, to me, that's really interesting. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that... that um I'm saying not only that, but I think it just shows that that he he really loved himself. I mean, I think I think he was really uh, you know, kind of people we would say he's full of himself. I mean, because it was because he he just loved his dreams and and the idea of what he was going to do, but which, which he had not which accomplished he done, yet. Which I don't know if 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 you mentioned this at the very the very first paragraph or second paragraph of the book. He's described as ability in the abstract. Yes. And so I think that really <laughs> kind of yes. um, applies to this here. <laughs> yes, the ability in the abstract. But he had it, and uh, that's what made him a good water clerk. Okay, so, so now listen to this. He, he talks about the success of his imaginary achievements. They were the best parts of life. It's secret truth. It's hidden reality. They had a gorgeous virility. The charm of vagueness, they passed before him with a heroic tread. They carried his soul away with him and made it drunk with the divine uh, filtry of an unbounded confidence in itself. There was nothing he could not face. He was so pleased with the idea that he smiled. Can you imagine him just <laughs> up there thinking and all of a sudden this big smile comes on his face? <laughs> you know? so, uh, so anyway, it, it really is looking like a, it's like looking at a movie. I think it's so well read, so well written. He said he was so pleased with the idea that he smiled, keeping perfunctorily his eyes ahead. And when he happened to glance back, he saw the white stream of the wake drawn as straight by the ship's keel upon the sea as the black line drawn by the pencil on the chart. So he's he's on the night watch, and of course uh, we skipped over that paragraph. But there's a there's a line charted out in the ocean that he's supposed to be, you know, keeping tabs on, and so. So you know he looks out, uh, you know, at all that and does does a pretty good job. He now thinks everything's just right on target. So uh, uh, anyway, um, I I I think it's uh, it's just something we need to know. And, and Conrad, like I said, I I do think that Conrad is showing not only maybe the good side of Jim because he is like blonde, he's very handsome, he's very strong, he's very tall. And uh, uh, in some ways, then, he gives us a comparison. And I know uh, my wife doesn't really necessarily like this, this page, but I think it's hilarious. And so, so here he's up on this, he's in his dreams. He's up on this romantic evening with the sea and uh, the skipper and the engineer. Actually, it's a drunk engineer. They get into a fight. <laughs> right before, uh, you know, whatever happens here. All right, I'm going to read this, and this is really funny to me. 
says there was something obscene in the sight of his naked flesh. So, so essentially, the skipper is uh, down below. He's sleeping. He comes up in his, uh, well, I, I'm assuming he has half his pajamas on with his sleeping jacket uh, on. But uh, uh, this guy is really kind of chubby. And uh, it says there he was red of face, only half awake, the left eye partly closed, the right staring stupid and glassy. He was hung his head over the chart and scratched his ribs sleepily. <laughs> so, so can you imagine the scene? It says there was something obscene in the sight of his naked flesh. Now, I'm assuming that means he was bare-chested. Uh, he, he, his bared breast glistened soft and greasy as though he had sweated out his fat in his sleep. <laughs> so so uh, Conrad is really, really, really colorful here. He said he pronounced a professional remark in a voice harsh and dead, resembling the rasping sound of a wood fowl on the edge of a plank. The fold of his double chin hung like a bag, triced up close under the hinge of his jaw. <laughs> Jim started, and his answer was full of deference, but the odious and fleshly figure, as though seen for the first time in a revealing moment, fixed itself in his memory forever as the incarnation of everything vile and base that lurks in the world we love. In our own hearts, we trust for our salvation in the men that surround us. So that's really a funny line, is that, that here, this is the skipper of the ship. This is the, the uh, Welsh German guy. And, uh, you know, he's supposed to, um, uh, you know, be like the savior, savior of the ship. And, you know, he has the comment, yeah, <laughs> it's like he sweated out his fat in his sleep. <laughs> so, so I know that's kind of gross. But, but I do think for all the guys out there listening in that, uh, that they would uh, think that's funny. All right. Now, I'm not going to uh, – we, we have a little bit of time uh, at the bottom of this page – um, notice it, it's. Uh, I think it does show Jim's self-confidence. It says Jim smiled without looking around. The skipper presented an unmoved breath of back. <laughs> it was the renegade's trick to appear pointedly unaware of your existence unless it suited his purpose to turn at you and with a devouring glare before he let loose a torrent of foamy, abusive jargon that came like a gush from a sewer. Now he admitted only a sulky grunt the second engineer at the head of the bridge ladder, kneading with damp palms, a dirty sweat rag, unabashed, continued the tale of his complaints. So, so these two get into this argument, and of course, uh, the, the engineer is drunk, and they, they start throwing a lot of barbs at each other. And uh, uh, anyway, I, I think you ought to read it if you haven't read it yet, because I, I do think it's, uh, it, it's really kind of... Uh, funny now um the, here's the the whole story with the patent now what happened so um let, let's skip to page 19 now this is this big section that's, the, that's how this paragraph opens up what had happened so everything looks peaceful the engineer's drunk the uh, the skipper was is still sound asleep and then something severe Severe, really serious, I should say, happens. It says, what happened? And uh, if, if you notice, everybody out there that's listening in, Conrad is really playing with us. He's keeping us in suspense this whole time. You know, he's, he's giving us the prophecies, whether well, you know, Jim thinks it's secure, you know, there's this beautiful romantic ocean, the moon is like a sliver of gold, 
But then something horrible happens, and he goes on to say, what happened? The wheezy thump of the engines went on. Had the earth been checked in her course? They could not understand, and suddenly the calm sea, the sky without a cloud, appeared formidably insecure in their immobility as if posed on the brow of yawning destruction. The engineer rebounded on the brow of yawning, uh, excuse me, the engineer rebounded vertically full length and collapsed again into a vague heap. So, so this knocks the engineer. The, so, so they've obviously hit something. This knocks the engineer off his feet. This, he said, into a heap. It said the heap said. Notice he doesn't say the engineer said. So it, you can see the Conrad's having fun with this. It says the heap said, what's that? In the muffled accents of profound grief. Remember, he's got a heavy German accent as well. So, so uh, uh, you can uh, imagine you know, uh, how he said those words. I said, a faint noise as of thunder, of thunder infinitely remote, less than a sound, hardly more than a vibration, passed slowly, and the ship quivered in response, as if the thunder had grown deep down in the water. The eyes of the two Malays at the wheel glittered towards the white men, but their dark hands remained closed on the spokes. So, in other words, they're holding tight to the ship. The sharp hull driving on its way seemed to rise a few inches in succession through its whole length, as though it had become pliable and settled down again rigidly to its work of cleaving the smooth surface of the sea. Its quivering stopped and the faint noise thunder ceased all at once, as though the ship had steamed across a narrow belt of vibrating water and of humming air. And so that that ends chapter 3. And so notice Conrad doesn't give us any details. All he tells us, there's thunder, you know, there's something's happened to the ship, you know, the, um, the, uh, uh, you know, the engineer is, is, is knocked down, and uh, the captain doesn't know what's going on. All right, so uh, notice then, uh, everybody out there listening, notice that uh, we get to chapter four, and um, chapter four is what uh, I, I would call it another jump in time. And uh, again, this is still page 19, and Conrad gives us very little details, but, but essentially what we end up is it says, a month or so afterwards when Jim, in answer to a pointed question, tried to tell honestly the truth of this experience, he said, speaking of the ship. And so, so it's essentially what we're thrown into now is this inquiry, what happened on the Patna? And, uh, you know, it's... it's um, it. Uh, it really does throw you and can throw you, but again, we just have to see that that uh, that uh, Conrad is is manipulating time here. Now, notice what uh, what Jim says. He says we we went over whatever it was as easy as a snake crawling over a stick, and he's talking about what happened with the Patna that night. It says the illustration was good. The questions were aiming at facts, and the official inquiry was being held in the police court of an eastern port. And so, so if you've ever seen how, let's say, the, again, remember now we're, we're uh, in the, uh, let's say, in the land of the British Empire, and, uh, you know, usually when someone was under investigation, they would be standing, not necessarily sitting. And so, notice it goes on to say, he said, he stood elevated in the witness box with burning cheeks in a cool, lofty room, the big framework of punkas, 
moved gently to and fro high above his head, and from below many eyes were looking at him out of dark faces, out of white faces, out of red faces, out of faces attentive, spellbound, as if all these people sitting in orderly rows upon narrow benches had been enslaved by the fascination of his voice. And so, so if you uh, if you've seen, uh, let, let's say, um, uh, a Tale of Two Cities, if you saw that old movie, you would get a good view of what this what this uh, courtroom looked like. And of course, a punka is uh, you know, one of those big fans, it's a big cloth fan, and they would have servants uh, you know, with, hold a, a string with it and they would go back and forth uh, to keep the, the area cool. So, so remember, you're in a, a tropical kind of a setting. It's uh, probably very hot, and uh, yet, yet there's many people are now really interested in what's going on. And so, so we still don't know what re- really went on, and now we have to wait and have it revealed to us through this court case. Um, It goes on to say, uh, it was very loud, talking about his voice, it was very loud, it rang startling in his own ears, it was the only sound audible in the world for the terribly distinct questions that extorted his answer seemed to shape themselves in anguish and pain within his breast, came to him poignant and silent like the terrible questioning of one's conscience. And so, if you remember at the very beginning of uh, you know reading the book, one of the things we know about Jim, he was tall, blonde, very handsome, and he had a unique voice. And uh, you know, and now now we're getting more comments about that. And so, so essentially, uh, what we're what we're seeing here is Jim is now on trial. No, I think uh, there's another quote here that we need to read. It says, Outside the court, the sun blazed within what was the wind of great punkas that made you shiver, the shame that made you burn, the attentive eyes whose glance stabbed, the face of the presiding magistrate, clean-shaved and impassable, looked at him deadly pale between red faces of the two nautical assessors. The light of a broad window under the ceiling fell from above on the heads and shoulders of the three men, and they were fiercely distinct in the half-light of the big courtroom where the audience seemed composed of staring shadows. They wanted facts. Facts. They demanded facts from him as if facts could explain anything. And so so you can see that uh, you know Jim is in big trouble. And, uh, you know, the, the courtroom is, you know, is very, very serious. So, any comments, my love, on well, the, the funny courtroom thing is, scene? The, the official, officials wanted facts. And the funny thing is, is, is that um, Jim just feels like the facts aren't enough. You know, he, he wants to fill in all the, what he remembers, the, his, uh, the emotions and descriptions and really in a lot of ways that's the way Conrad is too. Conrad always fills in all kinds of emotions and even though even though they may be um, they may distort the the facts because of uh, you know memory and perception but he it seems like he likes to describe that right. so and that's really what Jim is is saying is uh, 
is trying to say you know just just the facts aren't enough <laughs> right right and I, I know if you, if you get two different people involved in an accident or you know an issue is you know car accidents people see it differently you know and and uh, some people do want to talk from emotion some people want to talk from you know fact of well the tire blew mm-hmm. or the brakes didn't work and someone might be a little more emotional but I, but I think Conrad does a great job here. He says, uh, this is, this is a, a quote of them coming back after him, saying, hey, we want facts, we want facts. You've got to give us facts. He says, after you concluded you had collided with something floating awash, say a waterlogged wreck, you were ordered by your captain to go forward and ascertain if there was any damage done. Did you think it likely from the force of the blow, asked the accessor sitting to the left? He had a thin horseshoe beard, salient cheekbones, and with both elbows on the desk, clasped and rugged his hands before his face. Looking at Jim with thoughtful blue eyes, the other heavy, scornful man thrown back in his seat, his left arm extended full length, drummed delicately with his fingertips on a plodding pad. In the middle, the magistrate upright in the room armchair, roomy armchair, his head inclined slightly on his shoulder, had his arms crossed on his breast, a few flowers in a glass face by the side of his instag his inkstand so so in other words he's giving us the scene and these guys are just looking down their nose at jim i mean they they uh they're, they're not really uh uh listening to what he, he wants to say and notice jim comes back uh at his self-defense self-defense this is page page 21 and we are running out of time here so maybe i can finish this notice jim says i did not said jim i was told to call no one and to make no noise for fear of creating a panic. Remember, there's 800 people aboard. I thought the precaution reasonable. I took one of the lamps that were hung under the awnings, went forward. After opening the four-peak hatch, I heard splashing in there. I lowered then the lamp, the whole drift of its lanyard, and saw the four-peak was more than half full of water already. I knew there must be a big hole below the water line. He paused. And notice the assessor says, yes, said the big assessor, assessor, with a dreamy smile at the blotting pad. His fingers played incessantly, touching the paper without noise. So uh, uh, we're still, we're trying to get to Marlowe, and he's only two pages away. But people were running out of time. And so uh, uh, next time, my uh, sweet wife and I, we will be back, and we will be... uh, talking about Jim's encounter with Marlowe in chapter 5. So you can buy Lord Jim at Amazon.com. You may be able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com. You may be also able to find a copy in your local bookstore. And of course, you can also check your local library. So please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook And I just want you all to know that I have been working, and Gabe, my assistant, we've been working hard to bring that Facebook page up to date. So get on there and take a look at it. And if you you want to be my friend, I just might let you do that. So uh, anyway, if you want to find us on Facebook, simply search for Just the Best Literature. And uh, so until next time, keep reading.
You've been listening to just the best literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.